милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So we have something for you different this week. If you listen every week, you might know that I have some interns this summer. Amelia Pyler, you've heard her on the last few episodes, and Felix Helbing. You haven't heard him yet, and he'll be introduced in next week's episode. So they spent the last couple of weeks learning about podcasting, and they wanted to put their newfound skills to a test and make an episode of their own. I think they did a wonderful job with it, and I really hope you enjoy it. And so without further ado, here is Amelia Parler and Felix Helbing with Wine and Cheese, Comsomol Etiquette and Emily Post. All right, so, uh, yeah, this one is filled with um, some really great but also extremely ridiculous advice. I love this was only published in 2019, so this is not that old. So pre-COVID, but not pre-anything else. Yeah, and the article is titled 19 Ways to Be More Attractive According to Science. Ooh, science will tell us. Let's hear it. Yeah, the the wonders of science. Um, Okay. One, uh, wear sunglasses. That's one piece of advice. Cover your face. We don't want to see it. You will be more attractive. Go on. Their expert says that sunglasses make men look mysterious. Hmm. The eyes are such a tremendous source of information and vulnerability for the human being. Not having that information makes women drawn to you. Um, also another favorite of mine is, um, item number seven, which is to befriend a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Uh, yeah. This says, according to research from France, men who played nice with babies were more than three times as likely to score a woman's phone number than guys who ignored newborns. 40% of ladies gave up their digits after they saw men smiling, cooing, and talking with tykes. The reasoning behind this, right? The best way to show that you are a good friend and a good companion is by picking the least discerning person in the entire human population to befriend. Is that really a good litmus test? I have questions. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, what if I, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know, like, how to break that down. It's just, I don't know. Also, like, what if they find out it's not your baby and that you have borrowed this baby for the purpose of whatever, impressing women? I hadn't even considered the consequences. I think that's, like, literally the plot of a Seinfeld episode. (laughs) Like, I'm pretty sure. Uh, The next one also is pretty great, though. Um, number 13 is probably 
my favorite favorite of all of these and it's smile but like slowly um so this says uh men who let their smiles spread slowly across their faces were judged as more attractive than those who put on a quick grin uh according to some scientific study the slow smiling guys were also rated as more trustworthy showing that their expressions might be perceived as more genuine I would really like to do an experiment really quick, and I'd like to take this time to invite the listeners to also do an experiment with us. And I would just like to try, take 10 seconds, extend your smile over the course of the next 10 seconds, and let's just see how natural and easy it is to do that. Ready? Go. awkward thing I've ever tried to do. Really unpleasant. <laughs> Suffice it to say, uh, advice literature is still weird, I think is the takeaway yep. that we have from this. It was weird and it is weird and it will probably continue to be weird. Mm, almost certainly. Hello, listeners. Uh, my name is Felix Helbig. I am one of the interns at the SRB podcast for the summer. Uh, I am getting paid. Um, and I'm a PhD candidate in Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Pittsburgh. I write about Alexei Gaistev, Alexander Bogdanov, and sometimes video games. Take it away, Amy. Yeah, that's me. So I'm Amy. Uh, I am the other SRB podcast intern for this summer and fortunately also getting paid, which is great. Party. (laughs) Thank you to Sean and to ACES uh, for the opportunity for that. Um, Yeah, so I'm an MBA student at the University of Pittsburgh, um, and outside of the graduate school stuff, I'm also a working artist. Yeah, so we are here doing a short mini episode for all you listeners, Uh, and it's going to be a little bit lighter. It's going to be a little bit funnier, probably. It's going to be a little bit less academic than what you're used to hearing from this, but we, we do think it'll be some entertaining, like an entertaining interruption from your normal programming. So we hope you enjoy. Yes, that is the hope. All right, so the theme of this mini-sode is wine and cheese pairings, which you're probably like, what does that mean? Um, Essentially, we have taken two books of advice literature from the 1920s. One is Blit i Molodjoz, The Youth and Daily Life, edited by Asnipkov and published in 1926 um, in the Soviet Union. The second is Etiquette by Emily Post, published in 1922 in the United States, 
updated and republished ad nauseum. Is it still being published, Amy? Do you know that? Yeah, it is. I think we're on the 18th edition right now. I actually just read some pretty entertaining Amazon reviews of the 18th or the 19th edition. Sorry, the 19th edition of Emily Post Etiquette. Beautiful. All right. So why why are these wine and cheese pairings? Okay. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, there are a lot more similarities than I think a lot of people are aware of between kind of what was happening in the Soviet Union just in terms of daily life and what was happening here in the U.S. I think we like to focus on the differences, but we kind of want to focus on the similarities that we're seeing. Um, And while some of the actual advice is different, we do think that it's given in a similar way. It is about similar topics. Probably the behavior of the people they're trying to give advice to is pretty similar. That Both authors seem to really... Uh, resent the youth and their behavior. Um, and so we think that this is just a really interesting way to to kind of look at what was going on in the 1920s and just the daily life and what was expected of people in daily life in the 1920s. Since we're calling it Wine and Cheese, Felix, who is wine or which book is wine and which book is cheese? So I think firstly, I want to point out that uh, this wine and cheese pairing is not going to be like aged Gruyere made from a cow on some French farm whose name you know. Um, and neither is the wine. Uh, these are like Kirkland wine and cheese pairings. <laughs> Franzia. So, yes, yes, like uh, Franzia or yeah, like a I like that Kirkland signature Merlot and uh, mm, perfect a block of uh, mild cheddar. Yeah. Awesome. Um, anyway, I'm going to say just because I am smarmy and I am incapable of not being smarmy um, that the Boiti Maladjurge Comsomol Etiquette book is the wine, which makes Emily Post the cheese. Oof. Do you think Emily Post would like being the cheese? I think she probably would not, which is exactly why why she has to be the cheese. Oh, poor Mrs. Post. I really want to make this joke about eating too much cheese and farting, but I don't have the guts to do it. You don't have the guts for it? (laughs) 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 Um, Okay, Uh, the first excerpt that we are going to introduce to you listeners is from Boit Imaladjoj, uh, and it is about fashion. Before I get into reading it, um, I would like to just provide a little bit of background on the context that this book was published in. Nineteen. Uh, this book was published in 1926, uh, which is during the New Economic Plan, um, the NEP, uh, which was a policy of, that essentially allowed small-scale capitalism, you could say, market trading, that kind of thing. And it came directly after the period of war communism. So, you know, this is Russia is coming off, or the Soviet Union is coming off of 
years of war and famine and disease and uh, lots lots of people have died of sickness or starvation been killed in war etc so this was designed as a way to stimulate the economy and uh, make life suck less i suppose but a lot of the youth at whom this book is targeted uh, were staunchly opposed to the nip uh, because they felt like well here we we spent so many years fighting and dying for communism and then how what you're going to tell us that small-scale capitalism is okay like what the hell so bear that in mind uh these writers of this Komsomol etiquette book are telling the youth who are too communist that they need to chill out a little bit with that uh the first excerpt which is about fashion A Komsomol girl using the pseudonym Needle writes into a paper asking for advice on how to defend herself against reproaches from the other youths about her lack of femininity. The issue is that she primarily walks around wearing boots and shabby clothes which should, in her opinion, differentiate her from the petty bourgeoisie and bear witness to her simplicity. That's why she doesn't sew up the holes or tears in her dresses, is a clear sign of her dedication to the battle for communism. I suppose naturally some advice can be proposed here. That is, for her to walk around in a coal sack. She would cut holes in it for her arms and her head. Or not. I just feel so bad for poor Needle. Gosh. But not as bad as I feel for the next person that is described by Emily Post. <laughs> um, so this is our cheddar pairing for that Kirkland Merlot. And to give a little bit of background on the next, this next excerpt, uh, Emily Post is writing about women's fashion, specifically in this chapter, and I think it's in the chapter called Dress. And the way she kind of starts off all of her chapters, and we're looking at the first edition from 1922, by the way, the way she kind of starts off all of her chapters is by describing people that she thinks are doing a bad job at etiquette and manners. And she describes them in detail and very unkindly, which I find incredibly ironic. She's pretty cruel. So without any further ado, your cheddar. Less numerous, but far more conspicuous, are the dressed-to-the-minute women who, like sheep exactly, follow every turn of latest fashion, blindly and without the slightest sense of distance or direction. As each new season's fashion is defined, all the sheep run and dress themselves each in a replica of the other. Their own types and personalities have nothing to do with the case. Fashion says, wear bolster cases tied at the neck and ankle, or a few wisps of gauze held in place with cord plaster, and daughter, mother, grandmother, and all of the neighbors wear the same. If emerald green is the fashionable color, all of the yellowest skins will be framed in it. When hobble skirts are the thing, the fattest wobble along, looking for all of the world like chandeliers tied up in mosquito netting. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so I think, you know, there's the funny aspect of this, like Emily Post is very 
descriptive. And I don't know, I think the idea of cutting out just armholes and a head hole and a coal sack is very amusing. But on a slightly serious note, I really feel like we should just give all these ladies a break because both of these excerpts really smack of entitlement about the way that women dress. There's a there's a way that you're supposed to do it, and no matter what you do, you're going to be doing it wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. With that entitlement goes this kind of opinion that if you dress wrong, you are worthy of ridicule. If you do that, then we can treat you however we want. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just it's just so misogynistic. Absolutely, it is what you might call uh, bullshit. <laughs> Now, okay, so I have some questions, though, about some of the more specific aspects of these passages. For one, I assume in the first passage, uh, the the Soviet passage about the calm, small girl, this is supposed to be hyperbole, right? We're, like, we're supposed to be getting sarcasm from the author. He doesn't really, or they, he or she, doesn't really want this poor girl needle to be walking around in a coal sack, right? I'm assuming that he would like her to wear real clothes. Yeah, I, he's making fun of her. Okay. So he is just poking fun at her. He's saying, oh, you can wear a coal sack or you know what? You don't even have to cut holes in it. Just cover your head and arms with a coal sack. Yes. Because I mean, you know, it, it's sort of like, it's, it's making fun of this trend of fixing up your clothes, wearing nice clothes is, is bourgeois that they're trying to get away from in the 1920s. At least, you know, the this these etiquette writers certainly are trying to whereas what she's saying is like well i i'm so dedicated to to fighting for communism that i don't have time to attend to my personal appearance i think that during the period of war communism right that's okay because there isn't really time uh to deal with those things much less like the the materials are not available to be dressing up in, in nice dresses and going out to watch the American movies that are being played. But now there is. So he's saying, like, if you're if you're not going to patch up your clothes, you might as well just walk around in a sack because we don't want to look at you. Brutal. Oh. Before, uh, before we started recording, when we were talking about these excerpts, you mentioned that in some cases that this kind of look has become the height of fashion and uh, I'm really reminded of Zoolander <laughs> specifically <laughs> when uh, when they roll out their new line of clothing and have the whole show about the fashion show and it's called Derelict <sighs> and I think a coal sack would have done really well on that runway honestly oh no doubt no doubt it would have been great I mean you know whenever there's a 1990s Calvin Klein classic heroin cheek sort of look. I also like, I can't, I can't let a Zoolander reference go without saying, water is the essence of moisture. Moisture is the essence of water. (laughs) That movie is a cinematic masterpiece. Oh gosh, it's beautiful. And David Bowie absolutely nailed it. Okay, my last question before we move on to the next passage. Emily Post says, when hobble skirts are the thing, the fattest wobble along looking for all the world like chandeliers tied up in mosquito netting. Have you 
Or have you ever seen a chandelier tied in mosquito netting? Why would it be tied up in mosquito netting? And what would that look like exactly? I think it would look awesome. Like the image that is being generated in my mind is of some sort of like avant-garde art installation. I think it would be very cool. I think she's just sour. Maybe the issue is that Emily Post can't, you know, doesn't feel confident in these, uh, what did she call them? Hobble skirts. I don't know what a hobble skirt is for the record, but maybe Emily Post doesn't feel confident. And so she really feels like she's got to tear down other people that wear them. Kind of seems like it. She's just being mean. She is pretty, pretty mean. Okay. Shall we move on? Yes. Um, all right. So this next one is also about fashion. This is the one of the consumable ones. But this is fashion advice for men. Regarding neckties. These are no more or no less than a throwback to the past. As to why one might wear a tie for one or another unconscious Komsomol youth, it might be based on the fact that it looks good or, at the least, it's not so bad, since many leaders of the working class used to wear them. But I say it's careerism on the part of the rank-and-file members of the Komsomol for when they're groveling before their bosses, an authentic Komsomol should keep his neck bare to the sun, not walk around like a little dog in a collar. I just think that that's going to cause skin cancer. Keeping his neck bare to the sun. Okay. <clears throat> and our cheese pairing. So if, if our wine was a uh, barefoot Shiraz, then our cheese is pre-sliced Swiss. And this particular excerpt comes from the the part of Emily Post's book that describes how men should dress. She talks a little bit about neckties here as well, but goes into a little bit more advice about the way that men should present themselves in general. The well-dressed man is always a paradox. He must look as though he gave his clothes no thought and as though literally they grew on him like a dog's fur, and yet he must be perfectly groomed. He must be clothes shaved and have his hair cut and his nails in good order, not too polished. His linen must always be immaculate, his clothes in press, his shoes perfectly done. His brown shoes must shine like old mahogany and his white buckskin must be whitened and polished like a prize bull terrier at a bench show. Ties and socks and handkerchief may go together, but too perfect a match betrays an effort for effect, which is always bad. Bork, bork. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, let's just go back really quick and count the dog comparisons. So from the first excerpt, an authentic Komsomol should keep his neck bare to the sun, not walk around like a little dog in a collar. I suppose you could also argue that groveling is a, is a dog activity. Oh yeah, groveling before their bosses. That could be a dog-like activity. Yeah. So we have like one and a half. And then from Emily Post, he must look as though he gave his clothes no thought and as though they literally grew on him like a dog's fur, and he must be perfectly groomed. So evocative, but like also kind of disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I, it get, it starts to get a little weird. I'm thinking about like a furry mold. 
Oof, rough. You really don't like dogs, do you, Felix? I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the last dog metaphor. So we have four, three and a half, three and a half metaphors in two short passages. The last one is his white buckskin shoes she's referring to. His white buckskin shoes must be whitened and polished like a prized bull terrier at a bench show. I mean, I know men are dogs, but like we're just getting beat over the head with these metaphors. I've heard men are dogs. I wouldn't go so far as to say I know (laughs) men are dogs. I was going to (laughs) say. I've heard tell. (laughs) I think, yeah. So it's clearly either way you, you can be, if you're a man, you can be a good dog or a bad dog. That's what it seems like to me. If a comsomol is a dog, he's bad. You don't want to be a dog if you're a comsomol. You'd prefer to be a human, I suppose. Emily Post seems to really like dogs, though. I think she does. But, okay, here's where it starts to get confusing, though. So first she describes the man himself as a dog, and then she goes on to describe his shoes as a dog. So she's actually built this incredibly gruesome metaphor image in my head of a dog wearing another dog as shoes it's very like mad max yeah (laughs) i would agree ironic again because emily post is writing in kind of this like victorian from a victorian mindset of like how do we behave like upper class socialite victorians and yet her use of metaphors is painting a very mad max picture you're absolutely right about that i do have to say though so i personally think that there is a lot uh, in common between Mad Max and waspy Victorian ballroom kind of activities like what she's talking about or the Westminster dog show. I'm seeing the parallels. Because it's so cutthroat? Yes. Yes. So I'm wondering, can we pull any insights out of these two uh, out of these two clips or is it really just limited to the the fact that men are dogs no matter what they do as long as they wear a necktie i mean i think you know if we want to if we want to look at this seriously for a second like they're both about power and how to present yourself as as being a powerful person um and commanding authority of a certain type it's interesting i suppose to see what the trappings of of power look like in each case so clearly in the soviet context a tie is considered to be, you know, this kind of sign of your your bourgeoisness. And so wearing one is bad because you you want to look like you want to look like somebody who works with your hands, essentially. In the Emily Post passage, it's the opposite. Yeah, and I will say that Emily Post goes on after this passage to describe like how to if if you only have enough money to own one suit or if you only have enough money to own two suits how to wear them so that it looks like you have more money or it looks like you have a better career and so i think that that also plays into this as well because the term um, careerism is actually used in the soviet passage Uh, he says i say it's careerism on the part of the rank and file and so, yeah, there's a lot of similar similarities there between like, how do you want to present yourself to make it look like you are the correct worker? Right. And it's kind of interesting to just think about them as like, almost like acting as the inverse of each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It seems like the necktie actually symbolizes the exact same thing in both cultures. It's just 
that the ideal is different. Okay. Uh, so this next one is about handshakes. Um, the uh, writer says. Regarding handshakes, the necessity of doing battle against this shameful relic of the past is clear to all conscious young Leninists. We'll say it plainly. The act is an unsanitary source of infection. A whole plethora of infectious illnesses can be found on the hands, such as tuberculosis, angina, lobar pneumonia, venereal diseases, and more. As far as the handshake represents a criminal invention of papists and the bourgeoisie that can successfully corrupt the forgetful worker or peasant, we ought to eradicate this form of greeting with prejudice. Um, so our cheese pairing to this wine, what type of wine was that, Felix? I think that that was a yellowtail Cabernet Sauvignon. Perfect. Okay. So to pair with our yellowtail Cab Sauv, we are choosing, we're choosing queso cheese dip. Oof. Oh yeah. Nothing goes like, goes with a cab. Like cheese dip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this comes from a part of Emily Post's book, Etiquette, where she is discussing how to behave at the opera. Uh, and she is also talking about handshakes. And she kind of uses the opera as a, as a framework for discussing how to interact with strangers. handshake often creates a feeling of liking or of irritation between two strangers. Who does not dislike a boneless hand extended as though it were a spray of seaweed or a miniature boiled pudding? It is equally annoying to have one's hand clutched aloft in grotesque affectation and shaken violently sideways as though it were being used to clean a spot out of the atmosphere. What woman does not wince at the vice-like grasp that cuts her rings into her flesh and temporarily paralyzes every finger? The proper handshake is made briefly, but there should be a feeling of strength and warmth in the clasp and, as in bowing, one should at the same time look into the countenance of the person whose hand one takes. In giving her hand to a foreigner, a married woman always relaxes her arm and fingers as it is customary for him to lift her hand to his lips. If I can jump in for a second. Jump away. One thing that I would like to point out regarding the Komsomol advice on handshakes is that in the context of the 1920s, it makes perfect sense that they would be focusing on the prevalence of illness and disease on the hands because there were huge problems with sicknesses like, like cholera, typhus, tuberculosis. They were trying to instill hygiene into the people to keep them from dying so much of disease. That context seems to be, you know, completely absent in the Emily Post. Yeah, she's even encouraging like kissing on the hands, which I mean, like, you know, the US was dealing with the Spanish flu right around that time. Like that was a huge pandemic. Like talk about the 
death and devastation that caused. What type of what Emily posted just off her rocker here? Like that is horrible advice. Yeah, like come on, girl. Get it read, together. Read the room. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the CDC. <sighs> okay, so you actually translated this first passage, Felix, and I have a question. The venereal disease that is possible to get through a handshake, apparently. Is is that a direct translation? Mm-hmm. So the author was concerned about getting sexually transmitted diseases mm-hmm. from handshakes. Correct. I hate it when that happens, don't you? Yeah, it's the worst, you know. Like, I hate it when I get gonorrhea from a handshake. Yeah, all those syphilis particles floating around on your hands. That's how it works. Everybody knows that. I do like uh I do like the handshake as a criminal invention of papists and the bourgeoisie. Personally, I have to say, like, I've been thinking about handshakes in the in the COVID era and like I too would like them to just uh, be eradicated with prejudice because like they are kind of gross. Like, I don't know. It's like, do you know how many people like don't wash their hands like, still like, way too many? The thing that Emily posts or, or our um, Soviet author, both of them don't mention is how unpleasant it is to shake somebody's hand that is wet. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, and you're just confused, like, uh, your mind spirals out of control. Is it sweat? (laughs) Did you wash your hands? Is it chicken juice? I don't know. Yeah. I also, I do have to say, I really love uh, the metaphors that Ms. Post is employing here. Um, Like, the, the boneless hand, like a spray of seaweed especially um, because I think that we can all like very vividly imagine that. Like, yeah. Have you ever had somebody who just like kind of like really just extends their hand into your hand? Like I've always called it like a dead fish handshake. Like that's how I think of it. It's like a jellyfish. And I do like that. She, uh, she maintains that, that sea focused metaphor. Mm-hmm. But then she goes on to say, or a miniature boiled pudding, which I have a very less clear idea of what that would be like. You see, I'm imagining because I watch a lot of great British bake off that it's one of those like British puddings that they have them make where they like make a pastry casing and then they have to boil it for like four hours and it comes out and it looks like this like, like wet egg sack. Okay, that makes a lot more sense in this context, but I'm not super excited about the idea of eating that. And usually I want to eat all the things that are on that show. Yeah, I mean, apparently, like, a lot of times they put, like, really delicious things in them. Like, I think sometimes, like, one time somebody made, like, a curry one. Mm. Which I was like, that would be delicious, but also, ew. So is it kind of like haggis? Yeah, except it's not a sheep's stomach. It's like, oh, well, a lot of times they do have, like, suet in the dough okay it it just like it looks like a very like pale pasty like ball of skin it's really gross sorry to any british listeners who like boiled puddings well we are just cross americans so hopefully there will be some level of understanding that we're just not quite as cultured as the rest of the world i mean as evidenced by our kirkman cheeseberries hey don't knock costco brand it's delicious 
You know, it is true. You can get a lot of things at Costco that are high quality products. I really think we should be sponsored by Costco right now, honestly. That's, you know, I I think so too. All right. So should we move on to the youth? The youth. Yeah. I just want to say real quick that uh, if Costco does want to sponsor the podcast, you can get in touch at info at SIBpodcast.org. Thank you. Please sponsor us. We love Costco. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk about the youth. Okay. Um, All right. So in this next uh, passage from our Comsomol Etiquette writers, they are specifically talking about the, um, a version of the Comsomol youth that they want to allow to fade into the past. Um, This type is called a Bratishka. And so these are like essentially very zealous young communists uh, who many of whom would have fought in the civil war who at this time were very staunchly vehemently opposed to the NEP. Oftentimes like they were characterized as uh, speaking with lots of obscenities, um, just rejecting any kind of form of authority whatsoever. But you know, they would never wear neckties. That's for sure. Let's see what this author has to say about the Pratishka. A determined, all-encompassing type of Komsomol youth, the Bratishka, a bold and dour man rejecting neckties, God, window curtains, love, and much else, was created during the period of war communism. The new Komsomol youth should liberate himself from the influence of such obsolete, meaningless views as these days they can be not only inappropriate, but even harmful. All right, I got one question, everybody. Fellas, is it bourgeois to have window curtains? Such a good question, and I hope that we can answer that for you someday. I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know. Okay, so uh, that was our pink Zinfandel. We hope you enjoyed it. And with our pink Zinfandel, we're going to be pairing these Wisconsin cheese curds. Um, so, yeah, the Wisconsin cheese curds are Emily Post Passage, also about the youth. And she, throughout the book, talks about how the youth in New York behave. Uh, and she seems to fluctuate between respecting their new brashness and like the new kinds of cutting edge behaviors that they have. And then she kind of oscillates back to, uh, but they don't honor the old traditions. Um, so this is this is one of her oscillations. But because punctilious card-leaving, visiting, and days at home have gone out of fashion in New York, is no reason why these really important observances should not be or are not in the height of fashion elsewhere. So I don't think we've answered the question, though, that if it's bourgeois to have curtains. I don't, I don't think that we got to that answer. I have a hypothesis. Tell me. Um, so I think that window curtains or this argument about window curtains is bourgeois to have window curtains and you know i mean i assume if you have nothing to hide you don't need to put clothing on your windows i think it is the 1926 equivalent of the argument 
uh, about commercial surveillance, where if I don't have anything to hide, then I don't care about being served personalized ads. My privacy is certainly a small price to pay for relevant products. Consumerism at its best. Woo-woo. Yay. I don't know. Maybe it depends on the type of curtain. But like either way, we can say that both of these authors really are just not happy with the behavior of the youths. No, they are not. They certainly are not. And I mean, I think it's, you know, what what you can see in both of these passages is like a desire to exert some kind of influence and control over these unruly youth. And as we know, like one of the definitions of being a youth, like one of the major aspects of youthfulness is kind of not giving a fuck about what the old people are telling you to do, which I would imagine makes a certain kind of old person who really likes telling people what to do very upset. This is definitely something that we can trace straight on forward through history to today, um, both in advice columns and in just journalism in general, like any kind of media publication where there's just like these constant battles between generations and the, you know, what we're fighting over, whether it's like millennials killing the auto industry or millennials killing the housing industry or millennials killing Olive Garden or, you know, Gen Z is all depressed or, you know, Gen X doesn't have any opinions or boomers stole all the wealth from us <laughs> can you guess which which generation i am <laughs> boomers actually do suck though yeah. uh, <laughs> but i mean you know it's like that is happening now 100 percent. it's no different the attitude hasn't changed at all like it's just it's just the minutiae that's changed and I mean, we can look at TikTok even, like as a millennial myself and Felix, I know you're also millennial, like TikTok is kind of dangerous place for us to go. It's just run by these Gen Z people that want to take us down a notch. They always got something to say. Yeah, I'm going to say I, I don't brave the wilds of TikTok also because I think it's uh, like essentially spyware. Um, which is my my technological paranoia rearing its ugly head. You're not wrong. No, I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it is all social media. Just for the listeners out there who may not know, uh, yes, all, all social media is just absolutely mining all your data and it knows everything about you and it's a little bit scary. Um, yep. Unfortunately, though, even if you don't have social media, it finds you anyway. I mean, it's still pretty fun, though. That's the unfortunate part. At least I think it is. I enjoy the memes. People send me links to TikTok videos that have been posted on Reddit, and that is how I find them, because Reddit is the place that I live on the internet, Reddit and Twitter. I guess like a, like a real millennial nerdy person. Anyway, I just love, I love both of these excerpts, partly because, I mean, like, you know, just the idea that, like, that god like that that the bratishka rejects god window curtains and love like in that order you know? <laughs> like it's okay to have window curtains as long as you reject god right yeah it's like i don't know it starts with neckties god window curtains love and and the fact that they're all listed together in one sentence as though they each share like the same level of importance <laughs> 
rejecting <laughs> rejecting God and rejecting window curtains is like the same thing. Is is very entertaining to me. Um, <laughs> <sighs> well, I think that just about wraps up what we've got to say. <laughs> what we've got to say about our our wine and cheese today. Uh, so, dear listeners, if you came to this episode hoping to learn anything about etiquette that you can maybe implement in your daily life, I am sorry because I'm not sure that either of these two books can actually give you any direction whatsoever. Um, so Felix and I have come up with a couple of actionable items to send you home with. I would like to start with a disclaimer and say I am not a doctor, nor am I qualified to dispense advice to anyone, um, but I am going to do it anyway. So action item number one, drink at least eight glasses of water every day. And action item number two, don't forget to wear your sunscreen. This episode of the SRB podcast was written and produced by my co-host Felix Helbing and myself, Amelia Parlier. It was edited by me with a large amount of feedback and advice from both Felix and Sean. On behalf of Felix and myself, I want to offer a huge thank you to Eve for blessing us with her wonderfully expressive readings of the excerpts that were used in this episode. We also want to extend our thanks to Sean Guillory for the opportunity to produce this episode and to ACs for funding our work this summer. The music for this episode was Victorian Era Classical Strings by Orchestralis, Troika performed by the Russian Folk Ensemble, and Blame It On Me by Radio Night and provided by Epidemic Sound. Anyway, um, I will say this. Uh, oh, fuck, what was I going to say? <laughs> I'm keeping that in. That is staying. <laughs>